morning. It's good to be with you. How many of you here this morning were a part of this church before it was Trinity, when it was Rock Foundation? So we've got a few, a few folks. You may remember that I was, I served in in a temporary basis uh, to pastor uh, that church as you guys were transitioning to Iron's leadership, and I uh, developed a good friendship with Iron over the years. Back in 2005, my wife and I moved to Long Beach from uh, Pacific Crossroads Church to start uh, King's Church in Long Beach, so we've been there for the past 11 years, and uh, we are big fans of Trinity Church. We uh, care for you guys and, and are encouraged by the news that Eric is uh, coming to pastor the church here. Love Eric. I think he's a wonderful man, and I think you guys will, will be all right. I think you'll be all right. God's, God's taking care of you. I want to start this morning uh, having you join me as we pray. We're going to pray asking God to speak to us today. We're going to pray together uh, as a confession of our need for the Spirit to be here. It's a simple prayer. I think we will have it up. Yes. So uh, please join me and pray this together. Oh God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may uh, not be familiar with the story we read this morning in 2 Kings. Let me get you up to speed. And to do that, I need to go back to the Exodus. Most of us are familiar with that story where Moses, God uses Moses to bring his people out of their slavery in Egypt. When God brings them into the wilderness, he makes a covenant with them. He basically establishes a relationship with the people of Israel, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people if you obey my covenant, if you obey my commandments. If you don't, there are consequences. And in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, right before Israel is about to enter into the land, we're told this. This is the Lord speaking to His people. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So if you know the story, you know that the people of Israel go in, they conquer the land, they, they establish the kingdom of Israel. Uh, eventually, Saul becomes the first king. David follows Saul. Solomon follows David. But after Solomon, a significant event happens. The kingdom is split into two. There's a northern kingdom, Israel, that has its own line of kings, and there's a southern kingdom, Judah, that has its own line of kings. Now, in our reading this morning, we're focused here on the northern kingdom of Israel, and the events spoken of took place at around 722 B.C. And what we read about was God's God following through on the warning He gave His people back in Deuteronomy. What we read is the story of the Assyrians coming in and, and, and attacking, conquering the northern kingdom of Israel, exiling the people out of the land and reestablishing their own kingdom there. 
So what we see here are the consequences of God's people not obeying His commandments. The consequences involve provoking God to anger. Now, we're not comfortable talking about God's anger. There's a large denomination a few years ago that was compiling a new hymn book. And at King's Church, we, enjoy, we like to sing this song, uh, In Christ Alone, and this denomination wanted to include that song in their hymn book. But there was one problem, there was one line in the song that they weren't comfortable with. The line was this, Instead of, till on that, Christ is Je- till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to change it to till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. You see, the committee that was compiling this hymnal, they were not comfortable with this language of God's wrath being satisfied on the cross. They preferred to talk about God's love being revealed through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I share this story because I think it's a good example of what is a common trend in the church today. Not only our culture, but the church We don't like to talk about God being angry. To speak of God's anger makes God sound petty and archaic. It's a view of God that people believed before we were enlightened today. We're so progressive, we've moved beyond such language. And I'd like to offer two reasons this morning why I believe we're uncomfortable talking about God's anger. The first is this, is the concept of an angry God is offensive to a core value of Americans in the 21st century. And that value is this. There was a survey done many years ago. 80% of Americans agreed with this statement. An individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. The most fundamental belief in American culture in regards to spiritual truth is that spiritual truth is up to the individual. And that we must value and respect those spiritual truths, whatever they might be. Our culture values a God of love who supports us no matter how we live and doesn't object strongly to the idea uh, that we might worship a God of our own creation. We want a God who is pliable. We want a God who is compassionate. We want a God who doesn't get angry. You see, we want a God who allows us to create Him in our image, not have to submit ourselves to who He might be outside of us. And I think that, that's where this idea of God being angry really butts up against this core value we have as Americans. Now, we'll hold that value to a certain degree. I mean, there are things that we will draw a line at. I think in our passage at verse 17, if you were like me, when reading this, you probably were stunned when you read that the Israelites burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that is something we can get angry about. All of us, I think, would embrace an angry God that would not stand by and let people burn their children. So 
So we will draw a line. But we have to recognize that it wasn't only burning children that made God angry here. Look at what God was angry about. The people built for themselves high places. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill. They made offerings on all the high places. They served idols. They made for themselves metal images of two calves. They served Baal. All these things provoke God to anger. And the passage wraps up at the end. We're told that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. That God was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. Now I would argue, we could say, the people of Israel were simply expressing their spiritual freedom. They, they believed, and, and, and I believe were sincere in seeking to worship God in a way that made sense to them. They were taking the practices of the nations before that lived in the land before them. They were applying them in their context and simply worshiping God the way they wanted to worship Him. Again, here's this value that we as Americans would respect and uphold, and yet here's this petty God getting angry. What do we do with this angry God? Why was he angry? He was angry because they weren't worshiping him alone. They weren't worshiping him the way he commanded them to worship him. And as Christians, we don't like this picture of God. We don't like this idea that God would get angry at such things. And so we close our eyes to it. We don't talk about it. But here it is. And it's not only here in 2 Kings 17. There are many, many examples of God being angry in the Bible. One scholar commented there's probably over 500 references in the Old Testament to God being angry. There's a Hebrew expression that shows up almost 80 times in the Old Testament where it talks about God's nose becoming hot and in that context, it means his anger was kindled. We can take the example of God speaking to Moses in Exodus 4. Here God is sending Moses to go speak to, to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, no, I'm not the guy. He says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And we're told that the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. So much for the cliché, angry at the sin and not the sinner. He's angry at the sinner here. He's angry at Moses. Look at how God is described in Psalm 18. Notice the language. And the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. Now of course this wasn't actually what was happening, but it's language, it's human language to describe God, to describe His anger, to describe His character to describe who He is. And you might say, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament God. Or Old Testament God. Thank goodness we're, we're Christians. We worship the New Testament God. Well, what about Paul in Romans 1? Paul speaks of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Paul, familiar with this language of God's anger. But then you might say, okay, Paul, yeah, Old Testament, yeah, but thankfully we have Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, Jesus, the God of love, right? Well, what does Jesus say in John 3? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. B.B. Warfield, theologian from a uh, hundred years ago, he's talking about how Jesus' anger shows up in the Gospels. The quote, part of the quote is in your bulletin. Here's another section from it. It's describing Jesus. He says, From mere annoyance, says when he rebuked his disciples for, uh, for forbidding the children to be brought unto him, to burning indignation as when the unfeeling scribes would not permit him to heal the suffering on the Sabbath day. Yes, even to what the evangelists do not scruple to call outbreaking rage when he advanced to do battle with death and sin, the destroyers of men at the grave of Lazarus, even the Lamb feels and shows wrath. Yesterday my wife uh, was explaining the myth of, of ostriches sticking their heads in the sand to my eight-year-old, and he thought that was amazing. He was like, oh, how, how interesting an ostrich would hide their head in the sand. And, and that image struck me. I think we as Christians, we stick our heads in the sand when it comes to God's anger. Because we don't want to do, we don't want to deal with it. It goes against that cultural value that we have all embraced. But I think there's a second reason. The second reason is this, that we are inclined to view anger as a purely negative emotion. We rarely see healthy examples of anger expressed in our day-to-day -day life. Human anger is usually arbitrary and uninhibited. It's spasmodic outbursts. It uh, involves situations of people seeking revenge. But God's anger is so different. God's anger is integral to His holiness. You see, you cannot speak of God's anger and not speak of God's holiness. And, and we get an idea that anger can be holy uh, from Paul's words in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. So there we see the little door opened up to the idea that you can be angry and not sin. You see, here we have this concept of holiness being bound together with anger. And we begin to see the God of the Bible, yes, He's a God of anger, but He's a God who is holy. And then he's free from any idea of personal animosity or vindictiveness. This isn't the God that we worship. You see, the kind of God who appeals to most people today is easygoing and tolerant of our offenses. He's gentle and kind and accommodating with no violent reactions. But Dr. Leon Morris puts it this way, that God's wrath is his personal divine revulsion to evil and his personal vigorous opposition to it. He must be angry at evil. He must, because He is holy. And it's not a temper tantrum. And He isn't going around throwing things against the wall or punching holes and gets into the wall. 
We are told in God's holiness He becomes angry, but we're also told, as we read in the Confession of Sin, He's slow to anger. He has patience with people that continually turn their backs on Him time and time again, who violently reject Him time and time again, and yet He is patient and slow to anger. But He is still holy and must be provoked to anger because it's a part of His character. And the other beautiful thing we see about God's anger, not only is His holiness, but grace is often always tied in to God's anger. In our passage this morning in 2 Kings 17, God references the Exodus. He says, you know, this occurred because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The grace of God is being referred to here in the midst of His great anger. That God's relationship with His people is foundationally built on the grace of God for Him to even pursue that relationship to begin with. That He has pursued His people to be their God, and yet time and time again they turn their backs on Him. So God's anger must be seen in light of His holiness, in light of His grace. And we begin to see that it is a flip side of His love for us. Now what is the consequence of God's anger? What does the passage show us? Is it simply just about punishment? Here, here's the consequence of God's anger. The result of God's anger is exile. The, the result of God's anger is exile. Banishment from God's presence. Let's think about Let's reflect on that for a moment. It is a relational consequence. And as we look at the story of the Bible, it makes so much sense. Go to the garden, the very beginning of the story. What happens when sin enters the world, when Adam and Eve first sin? What must be the consequence of sin? It's exile. God must banish them from the garden. And what we see here in our story, God's people in God's garden, so to speak, His land, They've continually turned their backs on Him. What must be the result? Exile. Exile from the land. And in our passage, we're told that only Judah was left. But if you know the rest of the story, you know what's coming for Judah, don't you? The prophet Ezekiel speaks of it, and he uses this language of a cup. The cup of God's wrath is how it's talked about. Notice what he, Ezekiel the prophet uh, tells us in chapter 23. Here's the Lord speaking to Judah, referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. It says, You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore I will give her cup into your hand, thus says the Lord God. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Exile is the result of God's wrath. Now I hope you immediately begin to think of that night when Jesus was in a different garden 
the night before he was executed. And he's praying to his father. And he prays this prayer. He says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here Jesus is praying for that cup of wrath, that exile, to pass by. Because he knows the consequence. He knows what the result will be. Banishment from God's presence. His Father turning His back on Him on the cross. And Jesus cannot bear the thought of it. And He pleads, may it pass by. But He knows the answer, doesn't He? That that was His cause, that was His mission. To take that cup, to drink that cup, to bear that exile for you. For you. In the writer of Hebrews, he talks about this idea of exile and, the, and what Christ accomplished on the cross, and he uses the Old Testament imagery to talk about it. He talks about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. They, took, they burned them outside the camp. Exile. And he talks about Christ on the cross. He says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Jesus exiled to the cross outside the community. Exile, banishment for you and for me. So that Paul in 1 Thessalonians can say to us, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus drank the cup for us so that we might not bear that anger and wrath of exile. As John Stott summarizes, God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. But then you might be asking, if you're a Christian here today, so can God be angry with me? If I'm in Christ, my faith is in Him, I'm trusting in Him, and I'm continuing to sin, can He be angry with me? And I will say this, that if you're talking about condemnation in reference to anger, if you're talking about exile in reference to anger, then, then I would say no. But in Christ, that, that punishment is, has been taken by Him on the cross, and no, there is no condemnation in Christ and you are in Him, and He is in you, then you are free from that. However, we must be able to say in another sense that yes, God can be angry with His children. As any parent here would testify that your children make you mad at times, don't they? <laughs> they get you angry. Don't come by our house on a hot summer day when the windows are open. We try to run the air as much as possible to keep those windows closed. We don't want people hearing us yell, yell at our kids. They make us angry. It makes us angry to see them do things that we know are destructive. That are not right. That are not good for them. It stirs anger within us because of our love for our children. John Calvin writes about this. He says, For the other side we see that God, while not ceasing to love His children, is wondrously angry toward them. 
Not because he is disposed of himself to hate them, but because he would frighten them by the feeling of his wrath in order to humble their fleshly pride, shake off their sluggishness, and arouse them to repentance. Paul Tripp describes the anger of our God as one of his most beautiful characteristics. Because when you are in Christ, it is a... It is a part of His love for you, that He would care enough that you are, way, you're, you are going outside the lines of His, His direction and love for you, that you are, you are walking your life, leading your life in a way that, that's turning your back on Him. He will get angry with you to draw you back, to bring you back, because He knows what is best for you. His anger, His discipline is a sign of His love, His great love for you. You know, I think if any of you are songwriters, I wish somebody would write, instead of a song of worship, a worship song like the love of God, I wish somebody would write one about the anger of God. <laughs> Wouldn't be very popular. I would sing it. <laughs> but without that, can we really say we know the God of love? Can I really say my wife loves me if she doesn't get angry when she sees me doing stupid things and making terrible mistakes? We need to talk about God's anger more. We need to embrace who God really is. Now let me just end with this bit of application. Jesus got angry. God got angry. Do you get angry? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a part of your journey of spiritual faith is to become more like Him. And some of you need to hear this challenge because you pride yourself on being a very stable, calm person. In fact, you pride yourself in that you don't get angry. Maybe you never yell. Maybe you never get upset. Maybe your passions are never stirred. And you like that about yourself. And maybe, just maybe, there's a part of you that needs to come alive. That part of you that can be touched by the anger of Jesus at the evil of our world. The things that God hates. You know, we talk about loving the things that God loves. Hating the things that God hates. If you don't hate anything, that's a problem. That's one of my problems. I mean, I am a flatline personality. I'm a calm personality. And sometimes I'm convicted when I read Christ and read his, the stories of the Gospels and see His anger burn. And I wonder, where is my passion? Where is my anger? Why am I not angry? I read this interesting article. It was talking about our culture today and how many Americans today are angrier than they were last year. Now, the interesting thing about the article is talking about white Americans saying that white Americans are angrier than they are the angriest of all. And they were talking about it within the context of the political environment of our country. They were talking about how from white Americans' view, the state of the American dream has failed. America's role in the world is not what it used to be. And their life is not working out for them the way that they had imagined. And so a plurality of whites tend to view life through a veil of disappointment. Now, I don't think that's just white people. 
But I think there's, as the convention this past week showed, there's angry people. And I'm not going to say whether that anger is right or wrong, but I will challenge the follower of Christ to say, if that's all you're angry about, that's a problem. What about the things that breaks God's heart? What about the things that Jesus was passionate about? Are those things making you angry? Are the things that reflect the heart of God making you angry? If they're not, then that's a problem. And we need to repent. And we need to ask God for forgiveness. And we need to ask Him to give us His heart so that we might be stirred for the things that stir His heart. I love hearing about the Compassion Team. Women and children who are homeless makes me angry. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And that should stir us to action. That righteous anger. And I'll end with this. Um, there's an LA Times article uh, section last weekend. He's talking about the anger in our culture. And one of the comments it was making was how social media has stirred anger in our culture, and yet it has isolated us in our anger. When you think about all the segments of society, these different people groups, they, they're angry at these various things, and they do it by themselves online. And how that, in some ways, deadens us to the causes that might really get us angry. And so, I'll leave you with this. People of Trinity, be angry together. Be angry as a community. Don't, be, don't identify with a hashtag. Identify with the people of God. If you're angry about something and you want to post it online, ask somebody who you trust, do you think this is something I should be vocalize my opinion about? Get together and pray with one another about the things that make you angry. Be in relationship together. Be a community who is angry, not just an individual. Because each of you will help direct and guide a righteous, holy anger and become a part of the solution that Jesus has for your city, for our nation, for the world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do pray our hearts to be molded and shaped after your own. And for our passion and our desires to reflect your passions and desires. And as we seek to live our lives in a way that honors you, I pray that Trinity Church, Lord, would be an angry church. An angry church that honors you. An angry church that will not sit back and let the injustice, the sin, the brokenness, and the decay of our culture and our society remain untouched by your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, 
your compassion. I pray that this community would be stirred and find power in You, Holy Spirit, to be Your hands and feet and to bring the Kingdom of God to bear in their neighborhoods, in their workplace, in their families. Jesus, so that You would be honored and glorified through it all. It is in Your name we pray. Amen.